Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Willowburn. So this morning, as you know, we're in Revelation 13. So if you'd like to turn there, that'd be great. And what I want to do today is actually want to start with this slide, which says, are you ready to calculate the number of the beast? So if you want, you've actually got uh, calculators on your phone, yeah? Yep, you could even get ready with the calculator. We'll get to that shortly. Uh, obviously, obviously, we're in Revelation 13, which has the very famous passage about the mark of the beast, 666. And all through history, biblical scholars have come up with various ways of interpreting 666. And then other biblical scholars have come up with ways of refuting those interpretations. Uh, actually, even in secular history, 666 appears a lot in popular culture. All those kind of satanic horror movies obviously, uh, many times have 666. So I thought it'd be pretty important for us to actually calculate it today, as I think Jesus intended us to calculate it. I think it's probably one of the most important calculations you can actually do in your life. And I'm, I'm actually being serious. Uh, I wasn't quite being serious before, but I am now. This is probably one of the most important things you can do to actually have the wisdom, as it, as it says in uh, verse 18, to calculate, to reckon, to estimate the number 666 and what it actually means. But before we go there, I thought I would just start with a parable. And you may well pick where this parable has been uh, inspired from. You might see it uh, in scripture somewhere, but I'm going to call it the parable of the broken branch. And this is how the parable of the broken branch goes. And it starts with a question. What are you looking for, O broken branch? What are you looking for, O broken branch? It seems fairly obvious. A broken branch is a dying branch. So the branch is looking for rescue. The branch is looking for reconnection to its stem. The branch is looking for restoration. It's looking for rescue. It's looking for reconnection. And it's looking for restoration. And so the branch might say something like this as it lies there broken. I need someone with power. Power to rescue. Power to reconnect. Power to restore me to the stem. I also need someone with knowledge for what use is power if it is mindless, unknowing power, a power ignorant of my plight, of my need for rescue, for reconnection, for restoration. I also need someone um, who is here. And I need someone with knowledge. I need someone with presence, For what use is power and knowledge if it is power and knowledge at a distance from my brokenness? And finally, and most importantly, I need someone who cares for what good is power, knowledge and presence if it is power, knowledge and presence that doesn't care, that doesn't love, or even worse, it is power, knowledge and presence that hates and devours and is selfish. I would be even worse in the face of power like that. So the broken branch speaks to the grass upon which it lies and it says, gentle grass, soft, green, alive, grass that I rest upon, would you have the power, the knowledge, the presence to rescue, reconnect and restore? And the grass replies, broken branch, do not mistake my softness and my greenness for life. My softness, my greenness, my life will soon wither and fade. I cannot rescue, reconnect and restore even myself. Why do you think I can rescue, reconnect and restore you from your brokenness? No, you are badly mistaken. Look elsewhere quickly, for even now winter has come and my withering begins. 
So the broken branch looks elsewhere. O regal leaves, so blessed with colour and tone and life, leaves that cushion my long fall from the trunk, would you have power, knowledge, presence to rescue, reconnect and restore? And the leaves reply, broken branch, my colour, my tone, my life will soon crumble and rot. I cannot rescue, reconnect and restore even myself. Why do you think I can rescue, reconnect and restore you from your brokenness? You are badly mistaken. Look elsewhere. Even now winter comes and my disintegration begins. The branch decides. The branch comes to a decision. The broken branch comes to a decision. Gentle grass, soft and green and alive, grass that I rest upon. I do believe you will wither, and you, O regal leaves, so blessed with colour and tone and life. I do believe your disintegration will soon begin, but for now, O grass and O leaves, you do have greenness, colour and life, so I will lie here in your embrace until your embrace withers, fades and rots. Um, That's the end of my intro to the parable of the broken branch. And you're probably wondering how I'm going to get from broken branches to brutal beasts. Bear with me. Um, But in all seriousness, seriousness, now, as I get older um, and, you know, a friend of mine, actually, it was Luke's dad who said this to me once. He said, we're getting to that time of life where life will take away more than what it gives. Think about that for a moment. So I'm 45. So I'm in the second, well, and truly in the second half of my life. It's a, a time where I will already lost my grandparents. I will... Um, you know, in the fullness of time, I'll lose my parents. And in the fullness of time, if I, uh, if God sees fit to give me a longer life, then I'll lose my friends and I'll begin to lose my health. I won't be able to run fast. I won't be able to do those things that I used to do. It's a time of life that um, you lose more than what you're given. And so you might think this is a funny kind of weird kind of parable that I'm bringing out, but I actually really feel this parable, especially recently because Obviously, we've had some uh, significant serious sickness in our family with my brother having uh, acute lymphoblastic leukemia and being put in hospital. And I tell you what, when you go into that cancer ward, it's the, it's the living parable of the broken branch, broken people. Uh, you know, those people there, they, they often, because of the chemo, they uh, lose their sense of uh, taste, their, their throats become parched and dry. There's resus teams on standby to come and help out when the chemo goes wrong. Oftentimes they just want to be locked up in their room. They can't enjoy life anymore. They can't enjoy taste. Uh, they're, you know, because they're feeling sick all the time. They, they can't enjoy the footy. They can't uh, enjoy maybe shopping and, and buy new stuff. It's, they're broken. And they're looking to the medical uh, system. And, and I'm so thankful for doctors, so thankful for that you know, chemo ward down there. They're looking to them for help, for restoration, for reconnection. They're looking and so this isn't just a cutesy kind of little uh, parable. It, it, to me, it's, it's the state of who we are. It's the state of who you are. You might feel perfectly healthy right now, but you, just like that branch still looks green, you are actually dying if you are broken off from the stem. And this is, this is the parable of humanity. This is the parable of your friends, your relations. This is the parable of the people that we try and love and serve at work. They are broken branches. If they are disconnected from God and his spiritual life, they are broken branches. But how quickly we seek rescue, reconnection, restoration from other dying things. Cars, screen time, family even. 
and they might have the semblance of colour but really, and life, but they too are dying. They too are dying, which brings us back to Revelation 13. And what I'm asking, as I've always asked in Revelation, is for you to look deeper. In fact, what I'm asking is for you to, to look higher, to look higher. Because, you know, to look deeper kind of entails that you've got to have all this wisdom and training and then you kind of get beneath the surface of things. But if your eyes are down at the grass or the withering leaves or just the circumstances around you, it doesn't require any great wisdom just to look up. On a day like today, just even without speaking metaphorically, you look up today from your near horizon and what do you see? I don't think there's a cloud in the sky at the moment. It's a beautiful blue Toowoomba winter's day and the sun is incredibly bright and radiant. And so all of a sudden you get your vision from down here and you look up and you go, whoa, something bigger going on here. Something more extraordinary. And so with Revelation, it's often in your face, but what it's doing is it's saying, eyes up. Eyes up, my people, people of God, eyes up, eyes up, away from the near horizon. And so as I read this, look, you're going to be so tempted. I've already seen people doing it um, to read and go, oh, what's, what's that mean? What's that mean? And I'm just, I went to a lot of effort to put this together. So I'm just, I'm just asking that you listen to me and not sort of be flicking back and forth. But having said that, what I really want you to do is after the sermon and in the next few weeks is go away and read Revelation, read the cross references I'm going to give you to Daniel and other places and just spend some time kind of being infused with God's word for yourself. Would that be all right? And so uh, today, uh, as I read, I'm going to read this and then I'm going to pray and then we're going to get into how the parable of the broken branch is so important for us in understanding the brutal beasts of Revelation 13 and understanding 666. So let's read together. I'm reading from the NIV uh, chapter 13 in Revelation, verse 1. <clears throat> the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. Last week, we, uh, sorry, last time we heard about the, the, the dragon. Encourage you to go back and listen to those sermons. Heard about how he's got a hit on your life and what you can do about that. So Now he's calling up these beasts out of the sea. They're going to have his power, his authority, his personality. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had 10 horns and seven heads with 10 crowns on his horns and on each head a blasphemous name. So horns in the Old Testament are always uh, representing power, representing oftentimes um, sub-kingdoms. 10 crowns, on his thorns, uh, 10 crowns on his horns and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power, his throne and his great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a, a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Men worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast And they also worshipped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name, his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe people, language and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the book of life, belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. He who has an ear, let him hear. So 
who, who, said, who, has, who said that in the New Testament elsewhere? Jesus said it. He said it many times. And what it really means is, listen, listen, listen. This is so important. This is life or death important. Listen. He who has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. And I saw another beast at verse 11 coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. He exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And he performed great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come from heaven to earth in full view of men. Because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image in honour of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and calls all who refused to worship the image to be killed. He forced everyone, everyone, small and great, rich and poor, so from Hollywood star, from media mogul to peasant working in China, he forced all of them to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast for it is man's number and his number is 666. Let's pray. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, you are my refuge, my God, my fortress. In you I trust. Lord Jesus, you have told us in John 15 that you are the vine, we are the branches. If we will abide in you, we will bear much fruit. Apart from you, we can do nothing. Father, it seems to me that in the face of the rise of the beast here in Revelation 13, that abiding in you will become life or death important. It won't just be optional. It'll be absolutely essential. And so, Father, I pray here for my brothers and sisters, not only here, but all through Toowoomba and through the world, that they would understand the mark of the beast, that they would understand Revelation 13, and that they would abide. That they would abide in you. In Jesus' name, amen. So as you've already picked up on this parable of the broken branch really is a guiding metaphor for our spiritual condition. It's a guiding metaphor of a broken branch looking for, can you remember? Rescue, reconnection, restoration. So I'm saying that humanity is in that condition and I don't actually think I need to prove it to you. Just go to the cancer ward, go to a, a place in conflict, go to where there's a lot of death and suffering. Go to the cemetery, go to the old people's home. If you don't believe me, there you'll find your proof that we are broken branches. We are broken branches. We need rescue. We need reconnection. We need restoration. 
But as broken branches, we do tend to look to the grass and the withering grass and to the disintegrating leaves. And so what I want you to do is imagine as if that's our spiritual condition and as the world kind of accelerates towards some sort of global empire and all the stuff that we see here in Revelation 13. I want you to imagine, as we see here in verse 1, where it says the dragon's there and the beast comes up out of the sea. I want you to imagine the spiritual condition, the broken branch spiritual condition of humanity meeting this new climate, this new culture, this new global power culture, this new beastly kind of culture. As we see there in verse 1, the beast comes out of the sea, ten horns, seven heads, ten crowns on his uh, horns. The beast resembles a leopard, a bear, a lion. The dragon, which as we saw in previous sessions, is Satan, a malevolent, um, trans-dimensional being, incredibly uh, hateful, incredibly intelligent, hates anything to do with God, especially his people. He gives the, his personality and power to this beast. And so we might say, well, what is, what is the beast? I kind of already hinted at it, didn't I? First of all, I want to say that the beast is an empire. It's not the first time that we see the beast in the Bible. He actually appears very, very similarly in an Old uh, Testament passage, and I'll read it to you. It says, from Daniel, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me were the four winds of heaven. So he's having a vision, just like John is sort of having a vision on the Lord's day. And guess what he sees? Four great beasts. In Daniel's case, though, they're individual beasts, not one. And guess what they are? A lion with the wings of an eagle, a bear, a leopard. And then a fourth one that's terrifying, but it's never named. I actually believe it's being named now. And if you think about it, in uh, Revelation 13, he's sort of got little bits and pieces of these other uh, beasts. It's almost like he's kind of somehow assimilated like the Borg in Star Trek, kind of assimilated or consumed these other empires. And now he has a little bit of everything, but he himself, because he has probably a little bit of all those other ones, very, very terrifying. And actually in Daniel 7, we're told clearly that the beasts are empires. And we know, as we've said before from our study in Revelation, that a good two thirds of Revelation is Old Testament allusion, as in Old Testament reference borrowing imagery concepts themes from the old testament it's no different here you can actually if you believe me go go read afterwards uh, daniel 7 through to 9 and you'll see what i mean amazing resonance so we know the beast is an empire but this is the ultimate world empire the big one it's global it's all powerful it probably has a whole bunch of technology that other empires have never had Imagine these world empires, even leading up to the British Empire, which was actually the greatest in terms of geography. It covered 23% of the world's surface. Your Assyrian uh, empires and Persian empires, so they covered about 2%. That was because Britain had a whole bunch more tech uh, leading up and at least until World War I. Imagine now some sort of world empire with awesome tech at its, in its hands. The internet in its hands. <laughs> So this is the big one. And as we can see there, the horns, we were told that in Daniel as well, they're all uh, little sort of sub-kingdoms, sub-empires. It's like a federation of states, maybe even like states of a nation. They've come together as a big, big empire. So Revelation is telling us in graphic imagery that a world power is coming, made up of smaller powers. 
But that's not all the beast is. Because as in Daniel and here and throughout the Bible and throughout history, the beast isn't just an emperor, it is, sorry, it isn't just an empire, it's an emperor as well. It has a personality. And where do I get that from? Well, if you have a look at verse 4 in Revelation 13, it says, Men worship the dragon because he... So this empire has a satanic personality, satanic, um, satanic power, satanic authority. He had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast, and asked, who is like the beast, who can make war against him? So it's referred to as he and him. So they're not two separate things. What we're seeing there is all through history, empires have always been intrinsically connected to the emperor. So think the Persian Empire, who do you think of? Cyrus the Great. You know, you think of the Roman Empire, who do you think of? Maybe Julius Caesar or one of the Caesars, Nero, Augustine. You think of the Babylonian Empire, who do you think of? Nebuchadnezzar. You think of the Greek Empire, who do you think of? You always think of a person, you always think of the empire, you rarely just think of it as a nation or a kind of entity of itself, you think of it as a person. The Greek Empire was Alexander the Great. Now in the army, we realised very early on that each unit as it took on a leader, so whether it was a platoon commander or a company commander or whatever, we would often say that the unit takes on the personality of its leader because the leader has the power and the authority to kind of set the tone for everything. So if you think about empire and you think about emperor, guess what? The empire will always take on the personality of its emperor. So the thing about this global empire, this global world power, is it will take on the personality of who? The devil, Satan, the great adversary that we're told in, uh, in the Bible of many times. So Revelation, just to summarise, is telling us that a global power is coming with a global leader. So, but why is it using the image of a beast? It's interesting, isn't it? If you think through history, most empires have had some sort of image of an animal. Uh, as I was doing some research, there was the British Empire with a big lion, uh, many kingdoms have the dragon on their shield, which actually meant they'd probably conquered a dragon. But nonetheless, there's always been this affinity to have affinity with uh, animals, beasts and empire. We've got one, don't we? In Australia, don't we? Kangaroo. <laughs> well, punching kangaroo, maybe. It's not, although they can be scary sometimes. Um, so there is this intri- uh, intrinsic connection between empire and emperor, between nation and and leader, and also then this kind of symbology. Now, but there's more to it than that, which I'll get to a little bit later. Just hold that. But what is all that? I mean, what is all that to a broken branch, really? What is that to human beings in their broken spiritual condition? What is that to a branch looking for rescuing, reconnecting, restoring, looking for power to do that, looking for knowledge to do that, looking for presence to do that, looking for love to do that? Well, to the branch, the beast has power and it's very individual. It's very relevant. It's very personal because that broken branch within the arms of the beast sees rescue, sees restoration. And that is exactly how the beast will set itself up. We see it by doing it through power. So in verse two, the dragon gives the beast his power. People naturally gravitate to power, don't they? I mean, have a look at the people that kind of flock around, kind of like power groupies around, you know, big politicians and leaders. Notice within yourself that if, you, if the big boss comes down, something changes within you, doesn't it? 
You maybe, maybe you just want to get away from him. Or maybe while you're in within range, you want to get a bit of quality face time. Things change within us when there's power around. Now, this guy, this beast, this empire, empire and emperor has power to rise from the dead, apparently, or at least appear to do that in verse three. He has power to speak power words. Anthony Robbins will have nothing on this guy. This guy will be the ultimate motivational speaker. For 42 months, he'll do that in verse five. He has ultimate military power. Man, I wish I could tell you about some of the weaponry that is out there now. But I have to kill you because it's all secret. <laughs> no, I wouldn't really. I'm, I'm, I'm a pastor. I wouldn't kill you. Just get online. Have a look. Um, military power in this day and age will be terrifying. It will be terrifying. It already is thanks to the nuclear age. I got on a website the other day and I looked at a, a model of a fairly moderate-sized thermonuclear device being um, set and exploded over Manhattan. It was truly terrifying. Go Google it yourself. Uh, basically, so imagine, actually, let's do this. Let's imagine it's Brisbane. They set one off over Brisbane at height. So there'll be basically a, a, a furnace, a, an incredible furnace, basically between the range and um, and Brisbane set up that for a moment burns hotter than it literally burns hotter than the sun. Um, so within that, things are literally vaporized in some way, a, a probably a merciful thing. Then you get further out and you start to see the terrible effects of shock waves, explosions, and then of course radiation. Uh, America and Russia for many years have had plenty of time to develop those and make them better, and now we've got crackpots overseas who have also managed to get their hands on them. And I'm not saying that to be fear-mongering. That is just your reality. You've just got to deal with that. You as a broken branch have to deal with that. Um, I seem to have lost my connection here. I'll see if I can get it back. So just that one thing. But then if you look at all the other weaponry that's out there, uh, it's, it's, it's terrifying. So here will be, this beast will have governing global power. We see that in verse 7. It's everyone. It's not just 23% of the world's surface, like the British Empire. It's everyone. And of course, in verse 8, he has this religious power. He, he inextricably or intrinsically connects himself to religious authority and power, whoever this beast is. So he's going to talk religiously. He's going to talk about spirituality. He's going to talk about human need. He's going to talk about love. He's going to talk about faith. He's going to talk about hope. He's even going to talk about Jesus. <laughs> we see that further down where the second beast has the horns like a lamb, but speaks like a dragon. Well, who are we told is the lamb in Revelation? Jesus. And again, to the branch, the beast apparently has the power to restore and to reconnect. I mean, we even feel that now about our, our nation. And, and look, it's a great nation in many ways. But we even feel now that it has the power through its social welfare and stuff to help us and to save us. We feel that and we tend to run to that. But it is withering grass and disintegrating leaves. But nonetheless, there seems to be hope here for the broken branch. And, and there's another beast in verse 11. I saw another beast, so, so just bear with me in the count, okay? We've got the dragon, one. We've got the beast that comes up out of the sea, uh, two. Guess what we got now? Three, another beast. And each of them has the power and the authority of the dragon. Who else that we Christians worship is three 
three persons, one essence. Three persons, one in power and authority. Who? You know. Verse 11 says, I saw another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. <clears throat> he doesn't mind, like, like a lamb, he doesn't mind borrowing some truth to bolster his deceit. And now we see in verse 13, he has this incredible miracle working power. He performs great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven. He also has a recreative power, regenerating power, verses 14 and 15. He can respawn, apparently. Ordered them uh, in verse 15 to set up, and uh, then he sets up this image in the honour of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Imagine like as a broken branch, that, that guy brought himself back to life. Maybe it is a Jesus. That silly old book, the Bible, all those Old Testament passages that are so hard to deal with. The New Testament passage, maybe this is the real Jesus. And that really was just written by a, a, I don't know, people without any real inspiration from God. Maybe this is him. I mean, look at that power. And listen to those words. There could be rescue here for me. There could be restoration here for me in my old age or in my suffering age. And then we see that the, this beast gives the, um, build some sort of image. So in the Bible, image just means a representation of something made of a different material. So this representation now is something artificial. It's not organic like these beasts, something artificial. It has artificial intelligence of some description. It has artificial kind of life-giving power and it can actually for all those who refuse to worship this image, it seems to be pervasive. It seems to be everywhere. It can take people down when they don't worship. And I am thinking of 1984. You know, the TV. You know, this all-seeing eye, kind of like this presence, this false presence, this artificial omnipresence. So think about it for a moment. What have we got now? We've got, we've got power. We've got uh, knowledge, very smart. We've got presence. We've got, we've got this kind of false omnip- omnipotence, omnipresence and omni um what's the last one omniscience seems to have immense knowledge it seems to be connected everywhere at all times it's got this awesome kind of wi-fi thing going on and this this dragon is behind it all he's given the beast from the sea the power and the authority who in turn gives the beast from the earth his power and authority who in turn raises up this image and then for all those that are broken branch humans they're looking and going power presence astonishing knowledge what is this it it must be god it must be at least godlike and of course i like like this in revelation because it's got all that kind of big mega scale stuff and then this guy or this beast this empire controls the food it controls the means by which you can physically live and be sustained in for 42 months it's got power knowledge presence and food i'll struggle with that What you have here is the trinity of the beast. You have the trinity of the beast. Isn't it interesting that we worship a trinity as revealed in the Bible, whom we love and adore? You know, the great God of gods, the King of kings, who sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate representation, the ultimate truth-bearing image, who is truth who then through the power of his Holy Spirit dwells with believers everywhere. And you have this dirty, stinking, rotten beast who sets up his own trinity and yet he smells so good to the, to the world. 
This is why revelation is so important because when you in the future, perhaps, we don't know the time or the hour, but in the future you see a global empire and you see a global emperor and you see him just seeming so appealing and attractive. I pray you come back to Revelation 13, if it hasn't already been destroyed or become completely irrelevant to you. And I just pray you read it. Just read it out loud. Read it to your friends. Don't even try and interpret it. Just read it to them. The trinity of the beast sets himself up as a false trinity. And what is that to a broken branch? It's God. It's God. So interesting, last night uh, we watched Guardians of the Galaxy 2. And in, without too many plot spoilers, Star-Lord finds his true father, which is kind of all messed up. Because it's a little G God. He even says that himself. He's got pretty big power. can create planets and control energy and even take over the universe, it appears. And at first he appears so benevolent and kind and just, I mean, it's Kurt Russell. We all love Kurt Russell and he's got a mullet. (laughs) Who doesn't like a mullet? You know? And then we find out, sorry, plot spoiler, closure ears. We find out he is evil, intrinsically evil. Here's a little picture of the beast for you. It appears to be able to rescue and reconnect and restore with power, knowledge, presence and love. To the broken branch, it appears to be life, but it isn't. And even for true Christians, even Jesus himself says that it will be difficult and it will be so appealing because there'll be so much truth that's borrowed as capital from the Christian story to actually inject into this. There'll be a powerful temptation to sell out or cave in. Or my third one for Revelation now, cop out. There'll be a powerful temptation to take that mark, that mark of the beast, And that leads us to this mark, this number, 666, that clearly is belonging to the global power, the empire and emperor, to these global personalities, this trinity of the beast. As it says there in verse 16, this trinity of the beast can force small and great, rich and poor, free and slave to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number. His number is 666. So I just first of all want to point out with this number, actually get your calculators out. Um, First of all, it's 666. There's three figures, okay? Now what we're going to do is we're going to times that by three, raise it to the... No, we're not going to do that. (laughs) Sorry, we're not going to do that. Um, Look, I encourage you, there are some theories out there about numerology and so forth. Go go and look them up yourself. I'm not convinced by them because they just don't seem to resonate with the rest of Scripture. But anyway, um, so now what I I, I do want to do, we're still going to do the calculation because the calculation is so important. But we need to look at the context. So let's look at verse 18 again. What's it say? It says, everyone always focuses on 666. This calls for wisdom. So let's pray. Lord, Uh, Would you bring us wisdom now? Wisdom to know right from wrong, truth from error. Wisdom to know how to live this. Uh, Wisdom to love you more deeply and love each other more deeply. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're asking for wisdom. We can do that. The other parts of the Bible, like James says, we can ask for it. Um, Then it says, if anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast. 
All right, so let's put our thinking caps on and I'll, I'll put the calculation up. There it is, it's a very complicated one. You, a lot of strange formulas and stuff there. No, it's not. For, for people who can't see it, it's 777 versus 666. So, so here's some context, maybe you can see where I'm going. All through the Bible, and in particular in Revelation, you have God being related to the number seven. So Rudgy and other people like interaction, help me out. What are some of the sevens that are related to God? Let's begin in Genesis. Seven days of the creation week, six days and one day in which he rests from that kind of creative, energizing, life-giving work and just looks at stuff and goes, it's all good. Okay, seven days. So what are some others? Yep, rest on the seventh day. The Israelites are told to do that. So it's a working week. What else? So it's at the, good start, the start of Revelation, the seven spirits of God, or in uh, some translations, the sevenfold spirit of God. Seven churches of Revelation, seven lampstands, seven stars. Here's one, seven trumpets. So all of this is the work of God. Wherever you see seven, you will always see God working uh, or something to do with who God is. Uh, I, I didn't see this one before. I did a bit of research and actually the seven, remember our, uh, our, our teaching in John, the seven I am statements. That's pretty cool. Maybe you can look for some others this week. But nonetheless, you've got seven always attributed to God, never to evil, never to uh, Satan. And all through the Bible, you've got God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All through the Bible, you'll see verse after verse, story after story, conveying their omnipotence, their omniscience, their omnipresence, and in all of that, their incredible, cruciform, cross-carrying, tomb-busting love. Always. You'll see it pointed to, alluded to, all the way through Scripture, all the way into the New Testament. You've also got, in places like Ezekiel, I believe it is, people being marked, figuratively perhaps, as set apart for God. In a minute, we'll look at Revelation 14, where they clearly have a mark of some description that marks them as Jesus, as belonging to Jesus. And now you've got the dragon, the beast from the sea, the beast from the earth, an unholy trinity who have the appearance of power, of omniscience, even a fake resurrection, and they've got a mark. So we are told, with wisdom, calculate this mark. Now, interesting thing, oftentimes nowadays, uh, I don't want to bash you with Greek because I don't even really, I don't, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I can get my concordance out, I can get my Greek le lexicon out. And what's really interesting about this word calculate, it can also be translated reckon, estimate, count, um, what's really interesting about it is it actually comes from a Greek word where the ancient Greeks would have a white pebble and a black pebble. And when they were making a judgment of some description, if you were acquitted, then you would get the white pedal, pebble. Okay? Those pebbles then became a way of uh, kind of counting and making calculations as well. So the word comes from that. It's only used one other time in the New Testament. Does anyone want to take a guess as to where that is? I don't mind if you don't get it because I wouldn't have got it without looking myself. I'll read it to you. Who said this? Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate, calculate, reckon the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? So Jesus' words there are, count the cost. You want to follow me? Count the cost. And we know when Jesus speaks um, that he is consistent. He doesn't change his mind about stuff. We know that when he's speaking there in context he's, context, he's talking about disciples who just want to follow Jesus willy-nilly, not count the cost. 
And so the reason I said that this is so important, because it is, because essentially that 666, however, I don't know whether it'll be a real mark or a tattoo or an electronic signature or a tag like a dog, like a GPS tracking, I don't know. I don't know. But you do know that when there's a global empire and an emperor and a call um, to take some sort of mark or to somehow show your loyalty, and it means that if you don't, you won't be getting fed and you won't be able to trade, uh, then you know this is it. This is it. And what's really happening there, what's really happening there is you're being asked to do a calculation. Now count the cost. You said you were Christians. You said you were going to follow me no matter what. You sat in church week to week, month to month, year to year. You sang. You sang my songs. You hugged each other. You took communion endless times. Over and over and over again, you told me that I was everything. I, Jesus, I was everything to you. You said I would, you, you would lay down your lives for me. You said all that stuff now, now, calculate, count the cost. 666, the symbolic representation of the beast, of the global world power, of the global world emperor. Count the cost, count the cost. Because it will probably mean this. This is where Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword he will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. I'm so happy I'm not a prosperity gospel preacher because right now I would have an existential crisis. (laughs) Wouldn't you? But if we think about it, we find it uncomfortable. It's like, God, are you saying that I'm going to go into captivity? Yes. Are you saying that I'm going to be killed with a sword? Yes. So, so God, are you saying when I do my calculation, it's either trade, have food, have a pretty good time maybe, or go into captivity, be killed with a sword? Yes. That's the calculation. You know, wisdom in the Bible is not academic wisdom. What is the opposite of wisdom in the Bible? What, what are they called? A fool. A fool. And what is the definition of a fool? What's that really famous thing we like to quote at atheists sometimes? Very meanly. But maybe with a lot of truth. The fool says in his heart there is no God. So you can, I think, what's that quote that talks about um, there are some, oh, I can't remember it now. Anyway, it's probably not that important. So you've you've got this idea that foolishness is simply ignoring God, acting as though God doesn't appear. I mean, if there really is a super being, and I say that to maybe people that are not on the same journey or same point of the journey as us, if there really is, if there really is a super being called God and, he, and you're saying, no, there isn't, you are a fool. And I will, I'll now flip that around. If there isn't, I'm a fool. I'm a fool. But I just ask you to search it out. I ask you to speak to Christians that are true Christians that, that, that you know, really believe it and just see if there isn't the ring of authenticity, please. And what Jesus is saying here through John is he's saying, you've got to be counting the cost. You've got to do the calculation. It's either pledge your allegiance to the beast or pledge your allegiance to the lamb. I read such an interesting article just recently about faith as allegiance. Faith actually has a root meaning in allegiance, pledging your allegiance to someone. It's not just trust and dependence. It's also allegiance. 
So this whole passage, all of Revelation, is constantly about counting the cost, pledging your allegiance to the beast or to the lamb. And now I ask you this, if Revelation is true, if Revelation 13 is true, O broken branch, if it is true, do you really want to trust yourself to an empire and an emperor that is depicted by the Bible as a monster? Don't worry about the veneer. You know, now think about some of the movie stars, TV stars that we loved as kids. I won't name them because I don't want to shame them. We're already shamed enough. But, but even in Australia, you know, quintessential father figures who we now found out raped, let's just call it what it is, raped little kids behind the closed doors on set. Some of them even, and not in Australia, but otherwise, drugged them in order to have their way. They look so nice on the surface. They look so happy. They look like people you would want to emulate. And our little mirror neurons that were firing, we're going, yeah, I want to be like that. But what would those people who were raped say? And then when they saw them on TV, going on as though nothing had happened, they would say, Adrian, oh, that guy's a beast. He's a monster. That's what Revelation is doing. When you see a beautiful world empire and a beautiful world emperor, and it all seems cool, Revelation is saying, watch out. It has a monstrous personality. It will, it will erupt out eventually and consume and devour you just like we saw back in Revelation 12. The beast and the lamb. And I didn't want to finish with Revelation 13. You know, these chapter distinctions, they are completely arbitrary. Well, well, that's wrong. They're they're actually put in there, but they're not inspired, rightio. So if we just keep reading, what do we see? It's it's so amazing because... You see John and he's looking at the beast and he's looking at, uh, you know, the three beasts, the unholy trinity, the number of the beasts and terrible things, inner captivity, you will go, well, the whole point of going into captivity is that that is not the worst thing that can happen to you. If you love the Lord Jesus, there is a new heavens and a new earth waiting. We're not there yet. It's at the end of Revelation. This is not the final chapter. And it is so worth it to push aside the withering grass and the disintegrating leaves and say, no, 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 I'm going to follow the lamb. And I love it because you've you got this kind of, oh, 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 what is this? And then you get to Revelation 14. Then I looked, and there before me was a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. I want, I want that mark. Um, I think that mark would be, again, I'm not sure whether it's symbolic or whatever, but I, I think it's a good mark to have. Because to belong to him who died for me, to belong to him who took the nails for me, to belong to him who took the crown of thorns, the spear. Oh, wow. Wow. Just makes you want to say Maranatha, like the early Christian church said. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. Please come and set things right. We're waiting for you. He is the lamb. He is the true God. Yes, he has power because we're told he's also a lion, but he is a lamb as well. He relates to us. It's interesting that the dragon and the beast try to mimic God. Satan obviously knows that's our deep need. To have some sort of Trinitarian God with full power, omniscience um, and love. And so he fakes it. That's the best lie, isn't it? The one that has the most truth. And so little branches, I guess, how do we, how do we finish now? Does anyone know where that is? It's the tip. It's the Toowoomba tip. I was driving through there on Friday afternoon as the sun was going down and it just struck me. You look into a tip 
And what you see is people's joy when they bought that new kind of washing machine or they bought that new um, gadget. Uh, what you see is people's kind of uh, hopes where they'd hope that, yeah, this could be the, the break that I need or whatever, and it's represented in this thing that they bought. And then you're driving by on a Friday afternoon, it's been a long week, and you look over, and all you see is what? Rubbish. Rubbish. And I just thought, Lord, why are you showing me that? And I just thought, count the cost, 666. 666. That's it. Rubbish. Trash. Rubbish. Just stuff that's discarded. That, that's what Satan, the global empire, the world would want you to believe. Just live for now. Live for now, live in the near horizon. And instead of seeing the new heavens and the new earth, instead of like just pledging your allegiance to the Lord Jesus and following him for the rest of your life and, and achieving his kingdom purposes, even if it means going into captivity and taking the sword. Wow. I saw this uh, song from Switchfoot recently. It's called If the House Burns Down Tonight. And it's sort of this metaphor. If you're in your house and the house catches on fire and you've got enough time to grab that which is important to you, I'm sure you've heard this metaphor before, but it sounds so much better when it's sung by Switchfoot. Um, what, will you, what will you do? What will you do? What will you grab? And the words go like this, ashes from the flames. The truth is what remains. The truth is what you save from the fire and you fight for what you love. Don't matter if it hurts. You find out what it's worth and you let the rest burn. You let the rest burn. I know what I'll grab. I'm not going to say what it is, but it might have something to do with my love for God and my love for my neighbour, which is obviously my closest neighbours are my family. And you let the rest burn because it's going to burn anyway. And all that's happening in Revelation is God is showing us as saints, as broken branches, the true nature of the withering grass and the broken, disintegrating leaves that we are putting our hope in. And he loves us too much. That is why the end of the age will mean a whole bunch of reality checks. And now I come to the finish, which is abide in me. I love that. I think it's, is it Chris Tomlin or is it Matt Redman? Abide in me. Maybe we'll play it later. You know, abide with me. Don't let me go. Abide with me. This is what inspired my parable of the branch, John 15, 5. I'm the vine, you are the branches. If anyone abides in me, we had this as a Bible verse, and I in them, they will bear much good fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So, so in the time of revelation, in the time of the end, in the time of destruction, Abide is literally a word that means to live in, to actually house yourself in. And so when houses are in jeopardy, stuff's in jeopardy, what Jesus is saying there very clearly is if you'll live in me, if you'll, if, if you'll make me your residence, then you will bear much fruit, even when everyone else isn't. And so this whole parable is really about you as the branch deciding who you will serve, who you will pledge your allegiance to, and whether you will fight to abide. And what you're really actually doing is fighting to rest, to rest in Jesus, to rest in his power, his strength. We heard about Pentecost Sunday, that Emmanuel, God is with us, to rest in the power of the Holy Spirit, the true rescuer, the true reconnector, the true restorer, Jesus, Maranatha, would you say that with me? Maranatha. 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 Maybe say that to one of your workmates this week. Just go, Maranatha. And they'll go, what? 
You know, that's a Greek word for um, what the early church used to uh, really cry out when they were getting persecuted and hounded and picked on and killed. They would, they would go, Maranatha, which meant Jesus come. Jesus come and save us. Come and set things right. And so I'm finishing off with my reality check and we'll go on a communion. But um, for 2017, I'm finishing each sermon with Jesus' parable of the house on the rock. And this one's actually from Luke. I have been reading from Matthew. It says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? I will show what he, is, what he who is like, who comes to me, and hears my word, puts him into practice. He's like a man building a house who dug down deep, laid the foundation on the rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house, but could not shake it because it was well built. When the global empire comes, when the into captivity you'll go, to the sword you'll go, when the horrible times come, that house was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation, built his house on the sand. The moment that torrent struck the house, it collapsed. Its destruction was complete. Please, please, please be doers, not just hearers of God's word today. Purpose in your heart to abide, to ask God. Just, it, it's not a big straining kind of thing. It's just a wise thing to say to God, Lord, show me what it is that contaminates, that blocks, that, that makes me as a broken branch want to put my hope in disintegrating leaves and withering grass. Please, Father, would you, would you show me that? And I want, I want you to think as we move into communion now about the victory meal that's before us. So this victory meal extends into the past where Jesus died for us. And now it's such a simple thing. It's just a thing not to look at all the stuff around us, but to look up and go, Lord Jesus, I want, I want to follow you. I want to know more of you. Um, it extends into the past for, for his death on the cross for us. It's in the present now because his death on the cross means that we have relationship, fellowship with God. Just like Jesus has fellowship with God. That's what we're told in John. That's a very deep, rich fellowship. And then, of course, it extends into the future, into the final chapter. Because this is not the final chapter. This is like chapter 64 of... 99 or something chapter 99 the final chapter is where there is victory evil is vanquished once and for all there are no more beasts there are no more monstrous things going on in the world there is the new kingdom the new heavens the new earth and jesus says that in some way again i don't know how this works but with our new super bodies with the new kingdom the restored kingdom we all get to eat and have a party have a banquet jesus says that he will eat with us there so this is actually a victory meal. And it, it's interesting because there's no victory right now. Not this kind of victory in Revelation, I'm talking about. There's no victory right now. We haven't yet seen it. Don't mistake. You know, we often get really kind of, I guess, I don't know, religious and pious. And, oh, Jesus' victory has secured our victory. So let's be victorious. You know, like, I don't know, whatever you do, you know. And, uh, but what that does is discounts the fact that it is not in maturity yet. Thank you for your message on maturity because the world is not in maturity yet. The new kingdoms and the new earth have not come yet. So don't talk too silly. Let's be realistic. Yes, Jesus' death and resurrection is an awesome victory. It secures the victory that is to come. But we have not yet seen the new kingdoms and the new, and the new earth. But what this meal does is it points towards that in a very earthy way. And I love this because he's providing our food. You know, the beast will say, get a mark and then I'll give you food. Jesus goes, I'll go to the cross and then I'll give you food. I'll, I'll do it for you, kind of. That's an awesome thing. And he says, he takes the cup, uh, sorry, he takes the bread and he says, this is my body. He gives thanks just before he goes to the cross. Then he, he takes the cup um, 
He gives thanks again and he offers it to them. Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant that is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And he says, I tell you, I'll not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it anew with you in my father's kingdom. And so, you know, all the stuff we just read when he says, I'm going to drink it with you in my father's kingdom. That's after all this. So imagine being there with the Lord Jesus and looking back on events of your life, events of the world and just going, wow, you really were awesome. It was like Luke said, this love that I had or the love that I understood as a speck of sand, it's, it's actually as big as the cosmos. It really, really is. No more doubts. So I'm going to pray and I encourage you to come forward, take the bread and hold the cup. Father, thank you for just my brothers and sisters here and all over the world who today will take this cup and eat this bread. And Lord, I kind of wonder to myself in the future whether we'll remember this moment very well. I pray that we do because I think it will incite even more thankfulness in us. I pray that we'll remember this moment and we'll remember that how little we knew, maybe how small we were and yet how grand you were to be so patient with us and to love us so much. So draw us closer, pray, Father. Abide with us as we abide in you. Encourage us, I pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your body broken, your blood shed for each of us. Speak now to each of us as we share in this communion meal. In Jesus' name, amen.